Welcome to the Femininja podcast. This series was co-curated and co-hosted with our friends at Who's Knowledge. These episodes were recorded during the Decolonizing the Internet East Africa gathering in Lusaka, Zambia. Welcome everybody to today's podcast. With you, I'm Yulendria Pasami, and I'm the communications associate for the Visible Wiki Woman campaign at Who's Knowledge. And with me today, we have... Uh, my name is Sylvia Kerubo from the African Women Development and Communications Network, and I am the digital media officer there. And we also have our guest, Sandra Kuchiriza from Her Internet. Thank you for joining us today, Sandra. We're so excited to have this chat with you, and you can tell us a bit more, maybe about her internet, how it came into being, a little bit for our listeners who might not be aware of the amazing work you've been doing. Her Internet is an organization I founded in 2018, and we work around issues on supporting digital rights and internet freedoms for structurally silenced women and communities of uh, women who are marginalized. We focus our resources and efforts on LBQ women, so queer women, sex workers, and that. Um, her internet was birthed out of the fact that there's a lot of knowledge gaps in terms of the digital space and how queer people navigate that space. And yet we have such a huge presence on there. Sandra, you were telling us more about the landscape in Uganda when it comes to digital rights and skills, especially with queer communities, sex worker communities. So why did you decide to focus on those groups of people in your country? Yes, so I belong to these communities. I'm a queer woman and... If we don't do this work ourselves, I don't think any external person can fully capture our experiences in the online landscape. But also I was part of this amazing fellowship called the Safe Sisters Fellowship, which was a year-long program that um, equips um, civil society leaders, journalists, uh, media personalities with digital security skills and kind of introduced me to this whole area around digital rights. And out of that fellowship, I realized a need to fill that same space for our communities, for my communities, in Uganda especially, because Uganda is, even at FIFA, Uganda was mentioned as one of the worst examples for infringement on digital rights because of the rampant internet shutdowns and shrinking civic space, both online and offline. So for me, it was a privilege to do this work, to start this journey, with the people that I started with because it's the mandate of the communities. It's the communities that give me the mandate to do this work. If we didn't have the experiences we have, there would be no need for this work, right? So her internet essentially is supporting queer communities, sex worker communities in terms of uptake of digital literacy knowledge, in terms of information sharing, knowledge building, supporting around digital security, supporting around advocacy against online violence in all its forms. So we've been talking a lot about what decolonizing the internet means for us from our spheres of knowledge, from our lived experiences, as well as the work we do day to day. So in the work that you do day to day, how do you feel like the concept of decolonizing is in practice? Mm, I'll just kind of import everything we've been talking about the past couple of days. 
including today. So the work that High Internet is doing and the work that I'm doing with High Internet is decolonizing in the sense that it's centering narratives of queer people, which we don't see often. It's centering narratives of sex workers, which we don't see often. And oftentimes these are, I mean, of course, other communities of people as well, but these are groups of people that whose experiences are invalidated and yet most of the times um, we are the ones that kind of innovate ways of doing things because we've been marginalized for so long, but we still have to learn how to navigate this world, right? So invalidating people's experiences like that means that there is a whole huge gap of access to information, access to information on how to do things a different way, access to information on how to probably be secure in different ways, both online and offline. Because like I said, there is no longer any boundary between online and offline, our uh, online and offline lives. Like everything is just so interconnected that if you're not safe online, there is no way you're going to be safe offline and vice versa. So decolonizing also in the sense of centering narratives of these people and uh, in terms of content creation, in terms of knowledge production, in terms of what content we want to consume. So talking about how one can curate their space to sort of block out the bigotry and all that hate. Decolonizing in the sense that we want to see more queer people access the internet but also meaningfully engage with the internet and other online platforms. So for me, decolonizing in that sense just kind of brings the whole the whole thing together because there's so many moving parts that just kind of keep adding on to the other. But at the center of it all is that we are ensuring that our focus is on the communities we serve as opposed to listening to the noise from outside. So when we have resources, we focus them on these communities of people. We However much we work with everyone else, our focus really goes to communities of queer people and sex workers in Uganda. Again, because of shrinking civic space, generally shrinking space everywhere, and the crackdown on uh, queer organizations and queer organizing in Uganda, the crackdown on sex work organizing in Uganda, all the spill-off from election period because during elections, marginalized communities are targeted by politicians or people who want to be in politics as a way to get the masses on their side, right? So all that violence kind of keeps on spilling over every five years. We have that same cycle that just never stops, right? So decolonizing is very many things, but also all of those things in our context. Mm, thank you for giving us such a multi-layered view of decolonizing. That's not just one moment or one action. It's a bunch of things happening all at once. You know, and it happens on in an ongoing process. Mm. Mm, as you were talking, something that came to mind was the various ways that violences spill out into other spaces, whether it's from the political sphere into the general civic space, whether it's the online to the offline. And I wonder if you could maybe tell us a bit more about maybe some experiences or examples through the work that you've had of ways in which violence offline becomes violence online or vice versa? That's very interesting, actually, because in 2021, we did a research study on experiences of queer people and sex workers with technology-facilitated violence. And the wording of technology-facilitated violence was very political in the sense that we didn't want to only look at online violence because there is violence even if you're not on the online space that is technology-facilitated. For example intimate partner violence that starts out as 
arguing over someone's pin or password for the phone, right? And then kind of becomes physical violence or emotional violence or financial violence or identity violence and all those other forms of violence that come as that. And then um, out of that research, we also heard respondents say that one of the other leading causes of online violence is failing offline, rela failing offline relationships. So this is, again, could be intimate partners, could be friends, could be family members who you've been, you trusted enough to kind of come out to and, you know, talk about your identities and how you're navigating this world as a queer person, as a sex worker. But then when that relationship sours for whatever reason, the violence comes to the online space. So it, became, it becomes stalking, it becomes harassment, it becomes threats of violence, like rape threats, death threats, threats to be outed to, you know, your, your, your workplace or your neighborhood or, you know, st stuff like that. And then there's also the, the kind of specific violence that sex workers face from clients around, we've made, prog we've made plans to meet and, you know, transact business but then after business or before business there is that physical emotional violence that happens as a result of meeting someone online for whatever reason that you've met right so all those kind of all those forms of violence kind of are attached to technology at some point yeah i i just like to because yeah we've talked about violence and for me i think the thing that I would like to know the most is how do you ensure that there's safety online for, you know, the communities? They're very diverse in their ways. And we know Uganda is very violent when it comes to these communities. So how do you ensure that they are safe? Because I, I know most of them are very scared to even speak on it. And even sometimes we have sessions where we have to limit what we say we have to hide countries, you know, the country that they're coming from. Like, it's very intense. So how do you ensure that they are protected, especially in the online space? There is no foolproof way. I, mm -hmm. I think I need to say that right from the start. There is no <laughs> yeah. foolproof way. But the small steps we take, like digital security trainings, like um, talking about online violence in its entirety and creating awareness around it and the different ways it manifests, um, help. Mm -hmm. to as kind of preventive measures right as kind of preventive measures because also we know online violence is really multi-layered and once that train takes off it's hard to get off yeah? Yeah. so online violence for example non-consensual sharing of intimate images and information which then leads to people being outed which then leads to people's uh, families kicking them out or you know leaving school or leaving the the your home where you're renting because the landlord is being some type of way mm -hmm. right so what we do mainly is preventive measures digital security trainings creating awareness around online violence and how you can mitigate it but also creating a community of support mm -hmm. because online violence is really it's it's a very lonely experience mm -hmm. yeah it, you could be in a room full of all of us and would never know you're experiencing online violence, right? Yeah. So having a, a community of support really goes a long way, even if it's just emotional support, even if it's just come stay with me for a day or two and like just settle your mind, even if it's um, do you need to leave the country for a while? Do you need to like leave Kampala for a while, right? Or do you need to like 
get off the online sphere for a few days or a few weeks and just get your brain in the right frame of mind, right? So mostly preventive measures, but also offering support in whatever way we can offer support because support could also be someone calling you up and saying, um, my video was uploaded on TikTok without my consent and I'm in a compromising position. What do I do, right? Mm. And like there's nothing at that point that we can do apart from report the account, but also, you know, reporting with these platforms, it's about the numbers. Mm. And it's highly unlikely that we're going to get the numbers of people to report that account, to take down that content because yeah. of the nature of the context we are in, right? So preventive measures and offering support. You know, you said that I've just, it just hit me that um, the whole reporting situation, and it, I don't know if this is part of colonization, but sometimes if something is reported by black people, they don't really take it seriously. Yeah. But if it's reported by white people, they take it down immediately. immediately. Like it doesn't matter if it's two white people yeah. or three white people. They'll yeah. just make sure as long as, you know, this person, this white person feels like they've been offended. Yeah. Then it's not for the Internet. So it, it, it has kind of taken me back to that. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I can give like two examples, two stark examples mm -hmm. of exactly what you just mentioned. Um, the example about Dr. Ujuanya and mm. Jeff Bezos. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that tweet was doing so well until yeah. Jeff Bezos quoted it. That is true. Right? Yeah. It was doing so well until Jeff... Like, I mean, I don't think um, Dr. Uju's university cared one way or the other, yeah. right? While the tweet was still circulating. Mm -hmm. But when this multi-billionaire white dude said something about it, Who's also a donor in that school? Exactly, uh -huh. exactly. And she met up with unionists from Amazon. Exactly, so. <laughs> right. There's so many layers of violence that Jeff Bezos directly uh, di uh, targeted at Dr. Uju, right? Mm -hmm. And Twitter, in all, <laughs> in its glory, decided to you know take the white man's stand yeah. as opposed mm -hmm. to the real issues that Dr. Uju was really bringing out. Because no matter how she said what she said. The truth is still the truth, right? Yeah. No matter what, no matter how she said what she said, it's still the truth, and it's still the truth of very many people of African origin, and mm. and you know. So the other example, now that's one example of how those companies listen to like the what we consider the majority voices, so the white male, you know, kind of. Mm -hmm. That the example around reporting for black people, a few years ago, there was this post on Facebook. Around a an underage South Sudanese girl who was being auctioned off on Facebook by her family for marriage, for marriage. So the family went on Facebook, posted her picture, and said, "We are looking for someone who can offer us a number of cows. I don't remember how many cows they were, but probably in the thousands or whatever, as per their culture." Mm -hmm. So they were essentially auctioning off this girl. Of course, it was passed off as, you know, we are looking for a man, a husband for our child, but it was really auctioning, right? And this post stayed up regardless of the reports that were made from South Sudan and from probably allies elsewhere. Yeah. It stayed up for days and days and days. By the time Facebook took it down, she was already married off. To, and this girl was about 14 or 15. And the guy who took her was probably like 60-something or 70-something, right? But because he, he could make the quota that the family was asking for in terms of cattle and bride price. So that's like two different examples of how 
we experience the online platforms differently depending yeah. on geographical location, color of your skin, mm -hmm. your gender, and what the situation is. That is so true. Yeah. Oh. Wow, that is such a stark example yeah. of like how colonialism is was not only a historical past, but the digital colonialism yeah. comes into it now and we're seeing it play out real time. Yeah. Online spaces replicate the same oppressive systems we see offline. Like it's basically we just transfer all that bigotry onto the online spaces. So even as we navigate these spaces, even as we use them for organizing and mobilizing, we need to have that at the back of our minds that this this space wasn't created for people like us. It wasn't. So we just have to find a way, an innovative way of doing things, do it, making it work. Yeah. But it's not, it's, the system is already rigged against us. Yes, you have yeah. to carve your space out from there, right? Yeah. Because if you just play by the rules of the game, as it's said, by other people, for other people, you're going to lose. Yeah. Mm. So I want to take us back to something you said earlier about how creating spaces of solidarity, of emotional support, is really a, an important part of the work that you do. And kind of how, having spoken to a lot of the participants of decolonizing the internet East Africa, the connections, the affirmations, the support that's in the space is just invaluable. And it's a place where we can exhale, where we can hug each other, we can laugh, we can dance, we can connect and not have to explain ourselves mm -hmm. in ways that we often have to do in other spaces. Mm -hmm. So reflecting on your time at DTI, what would you say are some things that you want our listeners to know, listeners who weren't maybe at the convening, takeaways for you, reflections, any thoughts from the conference? Very many thoughts. All good. Um, <laughs> we also welcome that. <laughs> no, all good. Um, yes, I've talked about how the work at High Internet is, is working towards decolonizing the internet, but I think being at the DTI convening here kind of just brought everything home and also expanded my understanding of what decolonizing the internet means. I think when Anasuya was giving her presentation around how these systems have just been like kind of layered onto all the foundations of oppression, right? Kind of brought out the whole the whole need to decolonize the internet in its entirety, right from the infrastructure to the end user's experience, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things I'm taking away from here is expansion of my knowledge around what decolonizing the internet looks like and what it means. Uh, but also the um, the the resources and the level of knowledge in the room was just like vast and massive like every single person I swear I had something to learn from every single person in the room because I felt like DTI brought people who are working on like separate issues different issues by the end of the day we all saw what our web of connections is like we all we all see how we I see how I fit into your work I see how I fit into your work like I I see how everyone's work kind of brings everything together so the convening was um, rich, really, really rich. Oh, <laughs> <Aww, laughs> Sandra! Oh my gosh, that is. Thank you. <laughs> so, Sandra, let me just ask. Yeah. In in your world, what would a decolonized internet look like? 
How do you imagine it to be? I imagine where knowledge production from queer people and sex workers is considered legit, is validated in that sense. Uh, an, an example or like to kind of expound on this would be we know sex workers navigate online, offline relationships really well yeah. because this is their daily experience. Mm-hmm. So they've, they've, they've found a way to navigate this very tough environment. But somehow, when we are finding solutions for that, no one ever asks the sex workers. Nobody. Mm-hmm. Like, we all just assume we know best, like everyone else knows best, the sex, work, the, sex work, the sex workers just don't know anything, they probably don't know how to articulate their issues, or they don't know anything about the digital space or something. But you see, their experiences are very valid because they're actually real life issues in our context, yeah. right? In mm-hmm. our context, mm-hmm. not in the context of the West. If it's in Uganda, it's in the Ugandan context. If it's in Kenya, it's in the Kenyan context. So they are the they are the masters of their experiences. And so I envision an internet where minority voices' experiences are validated and their knowledge production is considered legit mm-hmm. and valid, right? Even if it's not to the status of being cited, <laughs> but at least it'd be somewhere in the chain of knowledge production validation, right? Mm-hmm. And then I envision an internet where safety is not the first thing I think about when I open Instagram or Twitter. Mm. Like, let me just open Instagram to scroll through and see beautiful people and their work or their amazing vacations or their their dogs, their pets. Like, let me not think about, oh, if I comment on this post, someone's going to come for me. Or if I post this picture, I'm dressed like this way, someone's going to come for me. Or if I say I work with this group of people, someone's going to come for me, right? So I envision an internet whereby Social media is social media. If I've gone there to work, I'm working. If I've gone there to chill, I'm chilling. If I've gone there to look for knowledge, like basically I'm just walking down the street normally without anyone catcalling me. Yeah. Yeah? Mm. Similar to that. I also envision an internet that takes into account the, both the good and bad experiences and then big tech can listen, right? Mm. So let's, let's not first... I think a few years ago there was no report button on Twitter or, or any social media platform for that matter. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's users who actually asked for these things, right? Mm-hmm. But as a big tech company, shouldn't you be envisioning these things like before we even ask for them, right? So I envision an internet whereby big, we don't have to beg big tech for these things because they're already holding the entire industry. Like they're already holding the space. Mm-hmm. Can we just not also beg for the bare minimum? Mm-hmm. Things like can the report button actually work? If I report, don't just tell me, oh, we received your report. Like, do something about it. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't even be about the scale, right? Like, if I'm speaking to two people, it should be the same as if I'm speaking to millions of people. And if one person reports a case of online violence, it should be treated the same way as two million people reporting that case of violence. Like, mm-hmm. just look into it. If it's, not, if it's baseless, move on. Mm-hmm. But don't ignore because you don't have enough people reporting. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of decolonized internet space I'm, I'm envisioning. Mm. Yeah, in that utopia. In that utopia, yeah. we're we're making it happen. Yeah, yeah. It well, needs to happen time. Yeah, once <laughs> a time. All this, all this will eventually come together. I yeah. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. 
Listen, there is this um, amazing feminist in Uganda called Twasima, and she always, uh, I, I had a quote from her one day, and I live by it. Live as though you're free, even in an unfree world. Ooh. Live Ooh. as though you're free, even in an unfree world. I have goosebumps. Oh, okay. what? Yes. And that, that's that how tattooed. I move in the world. That's how I move in the world. Every day I wake up and say, I am free today. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'll do it. Yeah. That is such a powerful way to navigate the world. Listen, what? there is no freedom that has ever come easy. So make it easy on yourself. Otherwise, no one's going to give you that freedom. Yeah, that's yeah. It's, it's hard navigating. It's hard navigating Africa and Uganda as a queer woman. So every day you wake up ready to fight. And I'm tired of living in a constant state of rage. <laughs> like, I'm tired of waking up every day and I'm just angry. And I'm so burnt out. And I'm so tired. Like, no, where is the pleasure? Where is the happiness in all this? Like, yeah. right? I yeah. choose to look at the bright side. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for sharing your time now with us. So I think as we are wrapping up today's podcast, if there is anything else you'd like to say, you'd like to add, people you'd like to shout out, <laughs> <laughs> here's your here's your time and space if there's yeah. anything we haven't covered. Um, I probably to the DTI conveners, it would be nice to have more of these spaces, whether in person or virtual. I think the conversations that we've started here could be expounded on. I would love to hear more about Tim Nitz's experiences. I would love to hear more about Anasuya's presentations. Like, I want to know more about what whose knowledge is doing, you know. So if there is a way we could keep the conversation going. Um, shout outs. I'm not sure. I guess um, just thanks to the amazing team at Her Internet for all the support they do. Um, we've received really great feedback in this space. And for me, that, that's very wholesome because I'm not Her Internet. It's an entire group of people behind me who are doing these things and making the work happen. So, yeah, just want to shout out to them and great work. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. thank you, everybody. I think we've come to the end of our podcast today. Yes, thank we you. have. Okay, Len signing out. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Yay. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much for joining us for the Femininja podcast. We really believe and trust that you have enjoyed our conversations and they have pricked some thinking, some, some, some kind of wanting to find out more about feminism, about patriarchy, and what is the role for each one of us in detonating patriarchy and proudly and boldly claiming ourselves as feminists. So stay tuned, keep following us, engage with us on Feminine website www.femnet.org Thank you. You can follow Who's Knowledge on Twitter at Who's Knowledge.